Welcome to After the Buzzer, a podcast about sports and, and stuff we care about. I'm Brian Carroll. And I'm TJ Watkins. And we have a great episode queued up for you today. We are previewing the World Series. We're also talking about another look at the Jermaine Burton incident in Neyland Stadium in Knoxville. We'll talk about the travesty that is concussion protocols in professional football. Is anybody interested in Bronny James and I.L. deal? Or beach volleyball and gender equity at little old Barry College. How about ESPN's game day coming to Jack State this weekend? So let's get this show rolling. And let's get it rolling with something that makes me very uncomfortable. Praising Bryce Harper. Ew! What, what's, what's the deal with Bryce Harper? Well, so... First, a, a quick personal story. So uh, I like covering baseball. I like it so much that I did it a couple summers for free here in Rome. Mm-hmm. Got to do Ozzy Albee's first season here. What a talent he is and was even then. He was 18 when he came into Rome. So it was Bryce Harper, 18 years old. So the first game I covered uh, uh, for him, he was with the Nats franchise. Uh, I can't remember which club that was, but mm-hmm. uh, his first at-bat home run. And his second at-bat, he's just hit a home run. This is his second at-bat in Rome for the Nats franchise, and he bunts for a single, you know, just because. (laughs) Just because he can. So he's showing all his skills. He just rubbed me the wrong way from the very beginning, his arrogance. I mean, he's rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. If you'll remember, when he was called up to the Nats, Cole Hamels uh, drilled him in the back mm-hmm. to say, "Okay, kid, you're in the bigs now. You got to prove yeah, yourself." Welcome to the show. That's right. Welcome to the show. And then, and then he did prove himself over and over and over. So that's why I don't like him. But let's talk about why I do like him now a mm-hmm. little bit, maybe, or dislike him a little less, <laughs> because few players do what he did in the sixth game uh, with that home run uh, to big dust moment, off. Yeah. Big the, moment. For big him. moment for him. Big moment for for the franchise. And it's a moment he might talk about when he's uh, being inducted into the Hall of Fame. You know, it's one of those catalyzing, never going to be the same kind of moments for both player and franchise. Mm-hmm. And and we were talking before we got started here that the big change in Bryce seems to be that he's now playing for team. Yeah, and that'll change any man and any person that's involved in sports. When you're acting in a manner of where you put the team first, you put the team ahead of your personal gains, personal needs, and when you see that change on the field of play, it's very astronomical to see someone's game get elevated in such a way, especially when you know you have guys that you can trust and guys that trust in you. You know, it's easy to play at a higher level, and it's easier to put your ego down and your pride down in the best way possible. And when you're being paid $330 million, yeah, that make everything be, a lot easier. It's a good thing to see because if, if we remember – He's uh, he's not traded. He's picked up in free agency by the Phillies. Thirteen year contract, three hundred thirty three million, and the Nats go on win the World Series without him. Mm-hmm. So it's looking inauspiciously for Mister Harper. But now in his fourth season, he's making good on that contract and uh, bringing something to Philadelphia that they haven't seen since. Uh, well, I had it in my notes the last time that they were in the postseason. It's been was two thousand nine. 2010. Nine was the Yankees. Uh, I think it's been longer, oh. um, but I'd have to. Go, we'd have to check. Um, yeah. Also, the, the fact they finished third in the NL East too. Let's talk about that because um, this is what's so fascinating about the World Series. This is the Braves last year. Mm-hmm. You know, they had a, a far inferior record to the Astros, and then took care of them in six. And this year, uh, the Phillies were the last team to make that playoff 60. slate. Yeah. 80, 87 wins, I think, going in, mm-hmm. and here they are. 
and they're hot and they're confident. And it, it really, it's again Harper. He's he hit 400 in that series. Uh, he was the MVP of that series. As Harper goes, the Phillies go. Uh, what what I'd also like to maybe uh, tap into before we move on to the next topic, and that's uh, manager changes. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. In this case, my goodness, uh, a different team after Joe Girardi is let, is let go. Mm-hmm. What? How much stock do you put in a, in a managerial change, a manager who doesn't play, who just sets line up, you know, lineups, and then now with uh, Universal DH, that doesn't do a whole lot except decide when a relief pitcher's going in. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, I feel like the, the manager change is a big thing within sports when you change – the kind of like culture or atmosphere that a team revolves around. And it could be good, it could be bad. You know, we've seen the effects of it. And in baseball, it's, I feel like baseball is this truly it's a marathon, not a sprint. So you really have to trust within the guys within the uh, organization and not only players around you, but the coaches and what they're doing, what they're talking about. So I feel like this Philly team really bought in and kept fighting no matter what that looked like. Because they easily could have laid down and not made the – playoffs at all but they come in as a six seed they come in hot they back each other up and they're playing for each other so when you see that kind of unity on a team it's hard to go against it and that's what i love most about baseball is it is you know it's seven games mm-hmm. you can have a bad day the other team can have an exceptionally good day but you're gonna have to put uh you're gonna have to put something together over you know more than a week to yeah. win a world series so, uh, all right, so before we close off this section of the podcast, let's make our predictions. Astros, Phillies, who wins, how many? You know, I'm going to go just like last year. I got Phillies in six. Yeah, I'm the same. I like hot teams. I like hot teams catching on right about this time, just like the Braves last year. So you heard it here. Phillies in six. Uh, TJ, you wanted us to take a look. Again, at this weirdo fan player incident up at uh, Knoxville when Tennessee upsets Alabama. What's going on up there? All right, so Jermaine Burton is a sophomore wide receiver for Alabama. He was tra- he transferred in from Georgia. And um, it was a viral video that went viral on TikTok of him hitting a fan that was running on the field. A whole bunch of Tennessee fans stormed on the field after they defeated 249 win over Alabama at Neyland Stadium. And... The problem with what had happened was he hit the fan and it's viral, it's visible for everyone to see, but the problem was he did not receive any repercussion for what he did. Now, he played the next, the following week against Mississippi State, had two catches, 40 yards, but it was the way it was handled probably within the team atmosphere that kind of was questionable to me because Nick Saban did not said that he did not feel compelled to punish the player, which led to him being. And, and what did he give as a reason? He said that it's more to the story that people seem to recognize, and he also said that he claimed that most of the players and coaches were scared by everyone rushing the field all at once. And that might work, except as you pointed out, we've all seen the video. Yeah. And we're not talking about this without video, Mm-mm. but we saw it. And did we see a scared football player of scared of a what of a twenty year old college co-ed? Yeah, like no, he's a football player in shoulder pads and protective gear. What are you scared of? Right, and do scared people fling an elbow at on rushing fans? Yeah, it makes no sense. It makes no sense at all, and it's kind of like Nick Saban was kind of like gaslighting the people into believing that they were the ones that were overreacting about the incident. When in actuality, this is a serious 
thing to happen. Right, and now the precedent's been set. Mm-hmm. So now any future player who does anything remotely like this, well, he was scared. Yeah. Really. Mm-hmm. Now, one other aspect of this is the rules do strictly prohibit fans coming out on the field. Mm-hmm. And Neyland Stadium is one of the largest stadia in the country and so when those fans start i mean that it that would be a little unnerving yeah yeah i'd be you know i'd be alert but uh, yeah but we saw the video i mean the the thing is we saw the video Mm -hmm. so what do you think saban means when he says you don't know the whole story i just is i feel like he's really deflecting the incident in itself and hoping it kind of dies down in a way i'm not saying that um, he's not condemning the incident in itself, but I feel like he is watching it down to the fact that he's trying to say, okay, let's calm down. It's not as serious as it seems because this should have never happened. But in actuality, it did, so you need to take care of it the way it should be instead of saying, now hold on, wait a minute, they shouldn't have been on, there on the first place. You're the athletic director at Alabama. What, what action, if any, do you take? He doesn't play until an investigation is finished. That's that's the action that should have been taken. He shouldn't have been able to practice or played, let alone, you know, been able to f- say how he f- or anything. Just he has to sit down, let the investigation finishes itself. He has to apologize and just takes the steps necessary to build or at least reflect on the incident that he did and why it was bad right. necessarily. Right. And in that investigation, I'd want to know two things. Why did he also push another fan we've got video of that too mm-hmm. so we've got a pattern and then nick what do you mean when you say we don't know the rest of the t- what is the rest of the story exactly because we need to tell the public something mm-hmm. yeah well that's just uh, unfortunate and uh, sort of the ugly side of college football and since we're talking ugly size let's just stay ugly yeah let's talk about what they call concussion protocols in the NFL. Now, I was watching that game live. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dolphins, help me remember who was it, Dolphins. That's a good question. Oh, man. Anyway, Tua goes down. It's the second week he's gone down. I watched live with Al Michaels very uncomfortably describing his clutching arthritic-type, like, hands. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, it was. It made me physically ill. I mean, I, I, I I had to turn the channel, which is sounds so cowardly in itself but i couldn't watch this poor kid you know convulse on national television i could not participate from an ethical viewing standpoint what was going on mm-hmm. what is going on with concussion protocols and here i'm gonna throw before i get your reaction let me throw one more thing into the mix here and that is i heard from a Barry student athlete uh, who shall remain nameless, that's not true, this person has a name, but will remain anonymous, uh, saying, we know what we're supposed to say when you're asked the protocol questions because we want to stay in the game. So there, there's, there's, more, there's a lot going on here. So what, what should the NFL be doing to meaningfully protect its athletes from long-term and, uh, in some cases, fatal effects of ECT. And fatal, I mean suicide. Well, uh, one thing I want to say is, like, of course, I'm with you there. It was very disturbing to see, even the days beforehand in his previous game, when he got up and he was stumbling around, and he ended up coming back into that game and finishing out. And that's what I'm talking about, because the protocol's got to stop that. Mm-hmm. I mean, when, when all of us see him stumbling around, 
we don't need a concussion protocol to say this player should stay on the sidelines until you know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Sorry. And then the Dolphins personnel sent them out and said they did the protocol that the NFL recommended. They did everything step-by-step basis and came up with nothing, and that's how it led up into playing on that Thursday night game. And the NFL conducted that investigation and said they were correct. So if that's the case, then you need to change the NFL policy on, okay, what is the concussion protocol and maybe extend it, maybe have NFL personnel instead of team personnel make that decision. Thank you. I think that's huge. I think independent uh, investigation, independent evaluation should Mm -hmm. be going on. It can't be a team doctor um, that's making these critical decisions. The other thing is, look, I'm not a bioethicist. I'm not a I'm not a physician, but I do know it's not the first hit; it's the second hit, yeah. and it's the second hit in a fairly short amount of time, and that's exactly what happened to Tua. Mm-hmm. So if I'm his parents, and I I am a parent, that's first; those are the first people I thought about to to his parents watching either live, uh, hope, hopefully they weren't there, mm-hmm. but live or on TV, seeing their son writhe and convulse. Um, something's got to change. All right, what's next? So, talking about Bronny James, who is the son of LeBron James, uh, he has signed an NIL deal of an undisclosed amount with Beats by Dr. Dre, and he's the first high school athlete to sign with this label. Now, the reason this is a big deal is because now high school athletes are making larger sums, if not more, than college athletes. And now it's, it's, ooh, I feel like it's getting out of hand a little bit, because Bronny James is a senior at Sierra Canes High School, and let's say he has an NIL deal now with Beast by Dre, and he's one of five high school athletes to sign an NIL deal with Nike. And according to some records that I looked up, he's the highest earning high school athlete by at least four times as much as the next because of his name and status alone, and he's also making a lot more than college athletes. So just the idea of high school athletes making seven figures or six figures before even signing to a college is astronomical to even fathom because just three, four years ago we were talking about should college athletes get paid by the NCAA. Now high school athletes are getting paid for their image, name, and likeness. Well, go back to his father's own high school career. He's uh, he's a junior and he's got a Humvee. And everybody's like, what? Mm-hmm. Who bought him that? And we're all concerned about that yeah. because that's corruption. Now his son, an undisclosed amount, well, we know it's in the millions. Yeah, it's got to be. So we also know that a quarterback for uh, a Div 1 team just just got a $2 million NIL deal. Um, so your concern at the high school level is somewhat similar at the college level. Uh, here's a quarterback making that much money. Well, his offensive line isn't making that much money. Mm-hmm. They're not making any money on NIL. What – what happens? What what's happening to this game? Uh, that's that's the hard part to figure out because now it feels like, you know, now there's a secondary element to any decision that's being made. You know, when do these guys play for the love of the game or do they play for the money? Just because they're good at it, they have the accolades, they have the status, they have the height, weight, athleticism. You know. Um, a lot of guys, like I always thought, a lot of guys, a lot of people that play sports, you know, play it for the money instead of the love of the game. You can see that in some people. Okay, but let me let me complicate things a little bit. The universities aren't playing for the love of the game. Mm-hmm. They're playing for the money. For the money. So what are we worried about 
when we say players aren't playing for the love of the game? I guess we're worried about them making decisions for their own financial gain. But, I mean, that that's going to happen regardless. But now it's happening at such such an early stage to where it feels like, okay, is this going to feel like it's going to corrupt the landscape of right. sports in general? We know money corrupts the game. Yes. So is this much money going to accelerate our fears and what – what we see as the degradation of certainly the college game, and now with Bronny, maybe the maybe high school athletics too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I first saw your game day note, uh, we're going to talk about ESPN game day in just a second. I thought the note said that game day was going to a high school game. Mm-hmm. So, oh, okay. which is not too. That's I mean that could happen. Yeah, it definitely could happen in the near future. We watched the uh, little world. We watched the little world series, little league world series on ESPN. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's a big question for us. Let me ask one last question on Bronny then. What are we worried about? I mean, we're worried about corruption. We're worried about money's influence. But in terms of taking Bronny's perspective on this, some of it's cachet of his dad. Mm -hmm. You know, some of it's that. But it's not a bad thing for him, is it? No, it's definitely not a bad thing for him. He's using his image, name, and likeness. Just as much as which is worth a lot, yeah, which is worth a lot because he's the son of one of the greatest NBA players of all time, second greatest. I said one of them. I ain't say I ain't say me. We we get another (laughs) discussion on that another time. But you know, it's not a bad thing at all. But it's it feels like it's accelerating the grand scheme of NIL deals as a whole. Yeah, and if we've given up the ghost on amateurism at the college level. We kind of sort of hoped that amateurism would remain and be retained at the high school level. Mm-hmm. And this is a statement that, no, the clock's ticking on that, too. Yeah. It's t- clicking a lot faster than we thought. Exactly. All right. Well, we've talked about some unsavory topics. Let's talk about something just awesome. And uh, that's beach volleyball at Berry College and gender equity um, more broadly. So... Uh, we this ran the carrier that uh, we have a uh, a donor who's not mentioned um, because I think well I won't speculate um, but this donor has agreed to uh, fund the building of a beach volleyball only venue wow. over on Dickey Field Dickey Field will be relocated behind the visiting uh, stands of Valhalla um, and I just think this is awesome because uh, you. You and I were in sports communication, the class, Mm -hmm. and you'll recall that in that class we had this exercise where we took one year's budget for University of Alabama football, which that year to 2019 before COVID was $73 million, and we gave Barry Volleyball that $73 million, and we said, here, build a sustainable, wildly successful story, you know, where you're the premier college for volleyball recruits to want to go play for, mm-hmm. at least uh, um, in Div 3. And here, here it kind of sort of is uh, coming to reality with uh, this beach volleyball venue. I think it's great, and we uh, crap on Title IX a lot, but here's an example of it working because we don't have beach volleyball unless Title IX requires us to have just as many uh, sports on the women's side as we have on the men's side. Mm-hmm. Well, it just so happens that the women's volleyball team here at Barry kicks ass – and kicks ass all the time, <laughs> third straight conference championship, and just a model program for anyone. So I just, I just think it's great. 
What, what what do you think about this this development? Well, it's my first hearing of it, and I can't think of anybody more deserving. Just because, as a fan and as a student, like we hear about the volleyball team a lot, especially me being here my freshman sophomore year. Like being in that atmosphere reminded me a lot of why being a student athlete is like really exciting and it's real thrill because you be in that atmosphere, you see everyone excited, everybody's there, everybody's engaged, nobody's on their phones, nobody's talking with each other about what's going on. After this, you're locked in at the moment, and you're witnessing important moments of not only the college's history, but the player's history, and what's going on. Like, it's people that you know. It's individuals that you care about. It's individuals that you are connected with, that you're seeing witness this kind of, like, landmark within the history of the game for them. So, like, I couldn't think of anybody more deserving to have this opportunity and this happen for them more than this team. And I love seeing it. Well, I can't either. And, and a shout-out to uh, Coach Robinson, who's now down at Rollins, who sort of built this program. And then now also to Coach Caitlin Moriarty, who has built on top of this program um, incredible success. Uh, she was just inducted into the Christopher Newport Hall of Fame, Sports Hall of Fame, for her uh, playing career. And she's just been – man, has she been amazing here at Barry because she, she doesn't just coach volleyball. She uh, – she molds leaders of of men and women. You know, she she takes a holistic approach to uh, to what it means to be a very a very volleyball player. Mm-hmm. This court's going to have hydration. It's going to have drainage. It's going to have regulation depth. This regulation length. That it's going to be in sub NCAA reg in every respect. Um, it's going to be something. I mean, mm-hmm. people are going to want to come to Barry just to play beach volleyball. And then, oh by the way, volleyball volleyball. And, uh, yeah, it's just I can't say enough good things about this. All right, well, next up, uh, a really interesting development, Um, another topic from sports communication that we use all the time, and that's uh, game day. Tell tell us what's going on with game day. So ESPN's game day is coming to Jackson, Mississippi, to watch Jacksonville State play against Southern University, which is known as the Boombox Classic. And these two universities have been playing since 1958, both are part of the SWAC, and this is the second time in game day's history or existence that it is visiting an HBCU matchup. And the first time it happened, the only time it happened prior was in 2008, where they visited visited Florida A&M with their matchup against Hampton University. So this is a big landmark. This is a big moment for HBCU sports and HBCUs in general because the leading man for Jacksonville State, which is Deion Sanders, has really catapulted the media presence available for SWAG for and HBCUs in general. And uh, Deion Sanders is 22 and five in his two seasons as Jacksonville State's coach. Last year they went 11 and two and won the SWAG, and also I believe won a bowl game. But he is emphasizing how important the moment is, regardless of. The fact that the players fully acknowledge it yet, you know, the players are in the midst of it. They're playing the games and, you know, they're getting ready, suiting up every week. But Deion Sanders has used his platform as a head coach and as a star NFL legend, Hall of Famer, to gather the media's attention, gather national attention to HBCUs, to historical black colleges. And he really used that platform to really just embody what – football is all about to me 
Yeah, I mean, it's really exciting. And although I'm a little uncomfortable with how much impact economically one television program can have, mm-hmm. we've, we have to acknowledge and in some ways celebrate the fact that uh, game day visiting Jacksonville State will bring estimated $1 billion in economic value free advertising, increase in applications, alumni involvement, just the whole thing, simply by having their show set on campus Mm -hmm. at Jacksonville State. And yeah, and you're right, when you combine that with the star power of Neon Dion, this is a match made in heaven. And when you take Southern University, which is one of the linchpin HBCUs, especially in college athletics, I think Grambling SU is probably the premier rivalry. But this is right behind it, Jack Mm -hmm. State, especially lately, because Jacksonville State comes in 7-0. And uh, uh, um, Southern. Southern, thank you, yeah. still holds a 35-30 advantage uh, historically. So this will be the 76th meeting of these two schools. Um, yeah, so of that billion, 1.5 million of free advertising, uh, I did I did just, you know, my little Google research deal here. UW Madison spent $6,300 when game day came to their, they spent $6,300. They got a billion. Mm. This is a lot of power for one TV show. Is that a good thing? Yeah, I think that's a good thing for these schools just because we talk about the fact that colleges and universities are making so much money off student-athletes, and we also, I guess we don't discuss enough how much, how many schools are in the red because only a certified number of high-end programs make profit at the end of a season. So for an HBCU to get game day, probably not spend as much money and get a large revenue generated for them, for each other, and even get the publicity for HBCUs is a big win for for everyone involved, I feel like. That's right. I I mean, absolutely. And from an HBCU perspective, this is great. Mm -hmm. This is terrific. Uh, Every 30 seconds that show runs on that campus is worth $51,000 to that institution. I just hope Jacksonville... Uh, Mississippi has water. Yeah, me too. That's just kind of my concern. All right, so we've just got a couple minutes. Uh, so, um, did we want to? Did you want to mention? We can mention it in this episode. So, so good. We've already got a few things on tap then for the next episode uh, because that's about all the time we have this week. We uh, sure thank you. You've been listening to After the Buzzer, a podcast about sports and, and stuff, stuff we, we care about. about. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions on what we should include on a future episode. You can find us on Twitter and Insta at vikingfusion.com, or you can shoot us an email at vikingfusion at I'm Brian Carroll. I'm TJ Watkins. Thanks for listening.